We are back at talking about the book of Acts. And I know you guys are like, man, I can't wait until Klaus gets back so we can talk about the book of Acts. <laughs> Said nobody. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to catch you up on what we've been talking about. Maybe this is your first time or maybe you started coming here when I was gone. Yeah, we're like in chapter 19 of Acts. And uh, this is what's been going on. So there's a main character of the book of Acts is a guy named Paul. And Paul got this amazing news. The news is this. It's because, remember, Paul is a Jew, okay? And he was like a religious person. He found out, okay, that, you know, that this character named Jesus, he's been waiting for this Messiah character, the chosen one, the one to show up, and he did. And he didn't recognize him when he was here, but after the fact, he figured it out. He's like, yeah, that was the one. And so he needed to tell everybody about this update. Now, we live in a world where we have phones, right? We have emails. We have social media. If I came down with a cold, I could email all of you guys and you would know right away. If we had to shut down the church because we lost access to this facility, you would know right away because we could send it to you via text or whatever, right? They didn't have that technology back then. So majority of the world was living off of old information. So Paul is like, wait a minute, the Messiah showed up, the Christ, okay? And not only that, because he showed up, we now connect with God in a different way. But the majority of the world doesn't know that. So he said, I need to go on these journeys around the world, updating people, basically a theological update. I need to tell everybody, guys, you know the guy that we've been waiting for? You know, the, the Messiah, the chosen, the one, the, the son of God, he showed up. And not only that, because he showed up, we connect with God in a very different way. Before we used to follow the 600 plus rules in the Old Testament, we don't do that anymore. Instead, we follow Christ's law, Messiah's law, which is this one rule, which is we are going to love others in the way that Christ has loved us. If we could get that one thing right, we are basically fulfilling all the Old Testament laws. So I need to get going. And so if you've been with us for the past few months, you'll know that here's a map. He started from a place right here that's called uh, Antioch. And he goes on his journey, going to all these Jewish synagogues. He goes to this island here, then he turns north. And when he goes north, he goes to Pisidian Antioch, Iconium. He goes to Lystra, then Derby. And once he gets to Derby, he's like, let me go back. So he turns around, goes back to Lystra, goes to Iconium, goes back to Pisidian Antioch. And he goes back down. Before he goes back to Antioch, he makes a little detour. He goes back, right? You guys probably heard me talk about this if you've been here for the past few months. But... He goes back and then he realizes something. When I tell people about this Jesus figure showing up in human history and how he changed everything, some people are like, yay, we're happy about this. You know, when he shows up with this theological update, you know, like do, 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 update, update, right? Um, people are thrilled, but there's a group of people who aren't. And he's like, maybe I got it wrong. Why are so many people trying to kill me for this message? So he goes and checks in with the original 12, minus Judas, because he's gone, right? And he's like, hey, guys, did I get the message right? And they're like, yes, you got it right. Now go back out there and give the theological update to the other, church, uh, other synagogues. Do, 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 right? So he goes on his second trip. That's the next map. So again, starting from Antioch, he goes northwards this way. He goes here. Then he goes for the first time, goes into Europe goes to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then he goes to the Greece area, Athens, Corinth, right over here. And then he sails across to a place called Ephesus, then he heads all the way back to his home nation, Israel, in a place called Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, he goes back to Antioch. Okay, but take a look at this map, 
okay, because there's something that's really interesting in the way he travels here. When he goes north from Antioch all the way towards Philippi, he goes around this area. This is Asia Minor. Why does he go around Asia Minor? It's because in the book of Acts, it tells us that when he tried to step foot into to Asia Minor towards Ephesus, he, Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, he says, the spirit of Jesus kept him from going in there. And scholars have no idea what that means. Like, did he get like a, like a spider tingle? Like, like, oh, I'm not supposed to go here. Like, we don't know. Or maybe he went into a synagogue and preached and they tried to throw him out. So like, okay, you know, maybe this is Jesus telling me I'm not supposed to. We, like, scholars don't know what that means, okay? But the weird thing about this is that he goes on this big travel. He goes to um, Corinth. And then at Corinth, he, he meets this couple. And this couple's like, hey, I heard you're going back uh, eastward, back to Israel. Can we hitch a ride with you? And Paul's like, sure. Where do you want me to drop you off? He's like, I want you to drop me off at Ephesus. And he's like, oh, that's the place I'm not supposed to go yet. But you know what? I'm a loving guy. Sure, get on the boat. Let's go. And so he goes to Ephesus. And when he gets there, he drops them off. And Paul decides to stay there for a couple days, you know, just to see, like, oh, I wonder what this place is like. And he gets back on his boat, and then he goes back to Jerusalem. So... He's been there for a couple of days when he wasn't supposed to, but now he gets this idea like, hey, I think I know why the spirit of Jesus didn't allow me to go here. Maybe it's because I wasn't ready to go there. You see, they're gonna dis- he's going to discover through the stories today that, that there is this force, there is this power. Had he had gone there first, he would not have survived. Like, <clears throat> for those of you guys like to play video games, it's like trying to beat the final boss but the, all the other stages are supposed to build up to that, and so you're overwhelmed by it. Uh, for those of you academic people, it's like taking the final without taking the midterm quiz because like, these things that you're supposed to come across are supposed to prepare you for the thing you're supposed to eventually go to, and that's what Paul discovered. So we're now on his third journey. So next map. <clears throat> Again, we start from Antioch. So he goes straight to Ephesus, and this time he stays there for three years. And this is where we pick up today's story. And, <clears throat> excuse me. I haven't spoken like this in like two months now, so it's like my throat isn't used to it. Okay. So the reason we're calling this, the, the series, we're calling this Power Trip is because Paul is on this trip, right? He's going through all these places. When he gets to Ephesus, this is the first time where we see the word power used over and over and over again. You're going to discover in this section of the book of Acts, Paul starts to tell people about the love of Jesus, he tells people about inclusion. He talks to people about how all races should be included. He starts talking about all these things and there's a huge pushback and he's wondering, he, like, he's scratching his head like, wait a minute, I thought we were all for this stuff. Like who wakes up in the morning thinking, nah, I wanna be racist today, right? Like I don't understand. Why, is, no, like, why are people trying to kill me for this message? So he comes to this conclusion, there must be something else at play here. There might be a power that we're not too familiar with, something that's beyond my grasp, something that I can't control. No matter how much I try to preach or how much I try to convince people, there are always gonna be some kind of power or force that's gonna be against this message of love. And Paul didn't know how to put words to it. So if you read the letter that Paul wrote later, he wrote a letter later, like after this, he wrote a letter to Ephesus saying, you know, there's, there's works of like, these forces, at, like there's these powerful forces at work and I don't know what it is. There, there must be some kind of, I don't know, some powers and principalities. Those are the words that he used because he couldn't put a, his finger on it. So today we're not going to talk about it too much, but you're going to see through the next few weeks these powers and principalities at work 
and find, we're going to find out why Paul didn't come here early on or why Jesus didn't let him come here early on. So with that introduction in place, chapter 19, verse 1, this is how it starts. Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. We just talked about that on the map, right? There, next slide, there he found some disciples, disciples, disciples of who? We'll find out, okay. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Which is a very odd way of starting a conversation, right? If I saw you today and you're like, hey, how's it going, Kotz? Hey, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like, it's a weird way to start a conversation. Paul is getting right to the point here and you'll find out what he's trying to ask. If you're confused by this question, we'll talk about it in a few minutes. So he asked, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, got, when you believed? Response, they answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What is this Holy Spirit you're speaking of? So Paul asked another question, then what baptism did you receive? Again, Paul is getting right to the point here and we don't know what the point is, right? So, and then their response, oh, we received John's baptism. Again, if you guys are lost, don't worry. We'll talk about it in a few minutes, okay? Then Paul said, John's baptism is a was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Okay, if you are completely lost, or maybe you have some idea what he's talking about, but if you're completely lost, you can spend the next few minutes explaining what's happening. Okay, so here is a timeline, okay, and unspecified time, here's a timeline, and let's just say Jesus died and rose again right in the middle, right around here. And when he did that, he split history into two parts. Uh, we'll just call it pink or purple, I don't know, fuchsia. I don't know, purple and green, okay? The green is what we call the old covenant. Old covenant, like an old contract. A way, the old way we used to connect with God, okay? And the Old Testament people, the people who lived in those days in Israel, they believed, like if they needed to know how they're supposed to live their lives, next slide, they believed in the laws and the prophets. Let me explain that for a second. If they're like, how am I supposed to live my life? They'll be like, hey, God told us how we're supposed to live our lives. Let's open the scroll of Isaiah. Let's open the scrolls of Genesis. Let's open the scrolls of Exodus. Let's look through all the laws in Leviticus. Oh, we're supposed to do this in this circumstance. This, isn't, this is something we're not supposed to do in this circumstance. So they had a rule book, basically, or a scroll, right? They had a rule book they lived according, and they also had a group of people called prophets. If there was something in the law that wasn't written, they're like, I have no idea what we're supposed to do because the law doesn't tell us what to do. They would turn to these people called the prophets. And these prophets would say, I heard from Jesus, or they didn't call him Jesus back then. I heard from God, and this is what I'm gonna tell the people of Israel. So they would listen to the law, and they'll listen to the prophets, and that's how they navigated their lives back then. Okay, and because of that, if you lived in the purple fuchsia time, of part of the timeline, you believe in these things. You believe that the Messiah, the one, is coming soon, which is right here, right? That you believe that you're supposed to follow the 600 plus commands that's found in the Old Testament. You also believe in exclusivity because they believe that Israel, the people, the Jews, they were chosen by God, okay? And therefore, we are the one and only. Like, you know, like don't cheat on us because you know, we are your one and only. That, that was their relationship with God. And because of these three things, now imagine if you lived back, back then, Every day you're thinking, it could be today that the Messiah's gonna show up. It could be today that God's gonna save us. It could be today where everything's gonna get fixed, right? And, um, but in the meantime, he gave us 600 plus laws. We're supposed to follow these rules. But if he comes back today and we're not following those laws, he's gonna be like, 
what, are you, what do you think you're doing? Like, I leave you guys for a few hundred years and this is how you're living your life? So they had to be on their best behavior all the time because they have no idea when God was gonna send the Messiah, right? And they also believe in exclusivity, which means God could show up and say, you're not following my rules, I should have picked another group. I should have picked those guys over there. So they were always living on their toes. So when they took baptism down here, this is baptism, it was because of preparation. So if you got baptized in the green of the purple fuchsia part of the timeline, if you got baptized back then, it was basically meaning, I haven't been following the rules of, this, of the Old Testament. I repent because I need to be ready for whenever the Messiah shows up. That's the way that they understood baptism back then, okay? But Jesus showed up, he fulfilled the law, and he rose again, and now we started this new timeline, the green era, the, the new covenant, okay? And a few days after the new covenant, we had the Holy Spirit show up, which means like, this is in Acts chapter two if you wanna read it. It's this story where people are like, we need evidence that God is actually working in, amongst us, and then all of a sudden everybody starts speaking in different languages. And like, okay, that's a pretty good sign, <laughs> right? And so the Holy Spirit comes upon them and now they're speaking different languages. They're like, okay, this is proof that God is working with us under these new set of rules, new terms, okay? So these people, this is what they believed. They believed that the Messiah already came, right? And they believe that we don't have to follow the 600 plus laws, we have to follow one command, which is love others in the way that Christ has loved us. What does that look like? Well, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, so we ought to sacrifice ourselves for the people around us. When we were at our lowest, God still loved us. That means we ought to forgive the people around us. Everything falls under the banner of love others as Christ has loved us. Okay, and then inclusivity. All of a sudden, when Jesus showed up, he was like, hey, you out there, you know, the outskirts, yeah, you are now part of our group. You over there, do you wanna follow me? You could, yeah, it doesn't matter what color skin you have, you could come over here, yeah. What about you, you wanna follow? There, all of a sudden, it wasn't just for Israel, it was for everybody. And because of that, baptism looked different. Baptism is now a form of identification. Baptism was your way of saying, if I'm gonna go under the water, that means I'm dead, and I'm gonna come back out as a new person, a person who, like Jesus, who died and rose again, I'm going to identify myself with him. If he's going to sacrifice himself for the well-being of the world, I will do that too. If Jesus is gonna forgive me infinite amount of times, I ought to do the same for the people around me. Are you guys following what's going on here? Okay, so baptism has a different, same ritual, different meaning. Okay. So, <clears throat> next slide. John the Baptist did his thing while he was in the purple. Fuchsia, pink, not sure what color this is, okay? And so, John the Baptist, he kept on telling people, hey guys, Messiah's coming soon, Messiah's coming soon. He kept on telling people, follow the 600 plus laws. He told everybody, we are Israel, we are God's chosen people. He kept on telling people, get baptized, repent. <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> repent because like Messiah's coming soon and then Jesus shows up. And soon after that, John the Baptist is killed by the Romans. Well, by the Jews, but under Roman power. Okay, John's followers kept on fo doing what John the Baptist told them to do for 80 years until Paul comes across them in Ephesus. They made it to Ephesus somehow. They met, they met each other. And so when he asked these questions, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? He's making a reference to this right here. It's like, hey, 
Do you know that when you are a follower of Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit? Like, we have never heard that. Like, okay. When you got baptized, were you baptized under Jesus, the green era, or did you get baptized in the fuchsia era? So what Paul is asking here is, hey, did you receive the theological update? Did you hear the update on what's been going on to which they're like, we don't have Facebook, we don't have Instagram, we don't know what's going on. It's like, well, let me tell you what's happening, right? And so when, these, when Paul says, let me update you on what's happening, Messiah did show up. We don't have to follow the 600 plus laws. We follow the law about loving others in the same way that Christ has loved us. We're no longer exclusive, we're inclusive now. And when we get baptized, we're getting baptized for the sake of inclusion, identifying ourselves with Christ, not so much about repentance anymore. On hearing this, next verse, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They're like, yes, we wanna be a part of that. Then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, upon, came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men and all. This is Luke's way of saying, they are now finally updated, like the software update has finally completed downloading and they've been, up, you know, the firmware has been updated and you know, whatever, technological term there. Okay, and now they're part of the group. They're saying, yes, we wanna get baptized for the sake of identifying with Jesus, not so much you know, repentance of, for the sake that one day the Messiah might come. So that's what's happening here. These people are like, this is great news. Now, keep in mind what a big deal this is for these people. I told you that these people have been following John the Baptist for 80 plus years. What does that mean? Back in those days, people didn't live to be 80 years old. They didn't do that. They had a shorter lifespan. And they had kids at a lot younger age than we are now today, right? That means for about three generations now, people have been following John the Baptist. So imagine, I am a follower of John the Baptist. My father was a follower of John the Baptist. His father was the follower of John the Baptist. It's just part of our DNA of who we are as a family. For somebody to show up and say, hey, you are outdated in your information, we need to update you. For them to say, okay, it's a huge deal. Imagine, like, my security for a long time was founded in making sure I was following these rules because for some reason I thought, if I follow these rules, God is pleased with me. From that to, are you sure it's okay to let go of these rules because I'm about to let go of that and follow this one rule? Are you sure that's okay? Like, it's a big deal to these people. But then, according to what we just read right now, these people were like, yes, we accept. Baptize us. We want to be with Jesus on this one. Now, let's look at the timeline again. If you look at this timeline, right, it seems like the people back then had a really hard time transitioning over to the green side of this, of this equation, right? Well, it turns out in Ephesus, there's another group of people who came from here. We don't know if they're followers of John the Baptist. We don't know who they are, but they are people from this era. That's all we know. <clears throat> and the way that Luke tells us is, is he tells this story to us in a way that makes us compare, okay? So let's read on. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, right? So he's like, okay, let me enter a synagogue and let me tell you guys about this new theological update, do, 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 right? But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. It's one thing to say, hey, Paul, great argument, but I still disagree with you. It's another thing to say, not only do I disagree with you, I'm gonna make 
I'm gonna shame you publicly for being wrong about this. Like these guys were really, really angry about Paul's message. Again, Paul's like, I don't understand why you guys be so against this. Like there must be something else at work here. But the way that Luke words this paragraph, the sentence right here, he wants us to draw, he wants to draw our attention to the word obstinate here. Because the word obstinate is this Greek word, I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right, sclerio, sclerino, 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 okay. The reason why this word is so important is because in ancient language, and maybe even today, there are certain words that are, are reserved for special use. Like, there's certain words that are supposed to evoke emotion and memories of something that happened in the past. So, here's a quick little history for you guys. By the time that the New Testament was written, the, the, the main language at the time in that area was Greek. So if you didn't speak Greek, then you missed out on the international language at the time, okay? It was such a big shift in the way people thought that they took the Old Testament scriptures, which was written in Hebrew, and they translated it into Greek. People would even say that when Jesus walked the earth, people understood and were familiar with the Greek version, which is called the Septuagint, that they were familiar with the, the Greek version, the Septuagint of the, of the Old Testament, okay? So if they were to look up Old Testament passages, they will find it in Greek words. Now there's a story in the Old Testament called the Exodus. In the story called the Exodus, there's a group of people called the Jews, the Israelites, who are enslaved by Pharaoh. Pharaoh is so insecure that he decides like, these people are gonna probably take over my land, which there's no indication of it, that I'm gonna enslave them. So the Israelites are now enslaved for years now, for generations, and they're calling out to God. And eventually God answers with this person called Moses. Moses enters this pages of history, holding a shepherd's staff saying, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses goes back to God and says, God, he, he, you told me it's not gonna be that hard. Well, he said, no. He's like, well, don't worry, you know, plague number one, gonna turn water into blood. Water turns to blood. Moses shows up. Pharaoh, you see what could happen if you'd say no to God? Let my people go. He says, uh-uh, you think water turning the blood is a big deal? No, that's not gonna change my mind, no. And then, this is what it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So Moses goes back, he said no, the blood trick didn't work. Okay, well here's another plague. It's like another plague, Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. Then it says, the, the, the narr narrator says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And this happens over and over and over again until the very last one. Finally, the last plague happens. Moses comes on the scene and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And then the narrator doesn't say Pharaoh hardened his heart. The last time it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like why would God do that? Well, it's because this understanding of how when we keep saying no, no matter what we do, it just hardens a person's heart. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The same sun that softens wax can also harden clay. God's love can also harden someone's heart. And when God, the text says, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, that word in the Greek is this word right here. Sclerino, sclerino, yeah, sclerino, right? This is what the author Luke is trying to say. No matter how much love Paul showed these people, their hearts were getting harder and harder and harder. Paul says, I love you. He's like, oh, it makes me want to hate you even more. There was nothing that was going to change the person's heart. And so the, the, the commentary that Luke is making on this story right here is, 
no matter what Paul does, these people, their hatred is so cemented that it's just going to make it worse and worse. Let me tell you more about love. Oh, it makes me want to hate more. That the more you love them, the worse things got. So what did Paul do? Next verse. So Paul left them. Paul's like, you know what? It's not even worth having this conversation because it seems like you're already set in your ways. The more I talk about inclusivity, the more you want to be exclusive. The more I tell you about how you could let go of the burdens of the 600 plus commands of the Old Testament, the more you're, you double down on that. So what did he do after that? Paul, well, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which is an awesome name. <laughs> then they went uh, on for two years. So love to be in that class for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The point of this section of Acts chapter 19 is that a soft and moldable heart is an indication of the person transformed by the Holy Spirit. When somebody comes to you and says, hey, I have a different lifestyle than you, do guards go up on your, wall, on your heart like, no, I don't wanna hear about it. No, you're a sinner, no, right? Or are you saying, hey, let me give you a hug. Or hey, I wanna to get to know you more. Hardness of the heart is the antithesis to the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question that Luke is probably asking us here and asked them back then and asking us today is, well, do you have a soft and moldable heart? And when I say that, you might be thinking this. Well, I think I'm a pretty good guy. Like, my heart is soft. You know, the other guys, the other day, somebody cut me off on the freeway and I was like, you know, it's okay, bless you. You know, like I think, well, there are those times when I was actually being a jerk. So maybe I'm not that, well, but you know, in general, and you start like, you start like doing this gymnastics in your brain thinking, no, I'm actually a pretty good guy. So I'm gonna reword this in a way that might take us straight to the point, okay, which is this. What about this? Does the church have a soft and moldable heart? As followers of Jesus, do we have a reputation for having a soft and moldable heart? When we turn on the news and watch people talk about, you know, how politics is going and how this is going, how the environment's going, does the church take the stance of somebody who's compassionate and vulnerable? Or does the church come off as hard-hearted, stubborn? By the way, the word sclerino also translates to stubbornness, immovable, hard-headed, right? These are some of the synonyms that come up in a, in a Greek dictionary. Does the church have the reputation of a soft and moldable heart? Well, how would we know, Kotz? Like, how would we know if we are, like, if we were a bunch of stubborn people or not? Well. I came up with three questions that might help us answer this question. So the question is, how hard is your heart? Hard heart, hard heart, <laughs> hard heart. Okay, number one, does inclusion threaten you? If somebody were to show up to this church who is poor, homeless, do you feel yourself getting threatened by that? Do you feel walls going up in your heart? If you see somebody who comes to this church who doesn't speak your language, Let's just say this person comes to church and only speaks Spanish. And to accommodate for that person, we ask the worship team, hey, can you play at least one Spanish song? And you're like, I don't know this song. I don't even know what these words are. Does that threaten you? If somebody came here with a different race, or what about somebody with different set of beliefs? If somebody who was Hindu or Muslim showed up at this church, would you feel walls going up in your heart? What about somebody who comes to this church with a different sexual orientation? 
Would that make you go, "Uh uh-uh, no, sorry, we don't. What about somebody who comes to this church with a different allegiance of political parties? Would that make you say, oh, no, you don't belong here. You're a threat to this church. How hard is your heart? Number, Number two question. Do you wish for people to go to hell? Oh, that person deserves to burn forever. Like we find some kind of joy, we don't tell people about it, but we find kind of some kind of enjoyment knowing that, that I stick close to what God taught me to do, and I think I'm going to heaven, right? But everybody else, you know, they lived, they, did, they partied all night, they deserve to go to hell. I'll be laughing at the end of the story at them, ha ha ha. Do you find some kind of enjoyment, some kind of glee inside your heart? wishing that somebody would go to hell. Again, how hard is your heart? And maybe this isn't just a question for like us, but also for the church. Do you think the church in America in general, do we think we take a little pleasure in thinking that somebody's going to hell? Third question, do you value truth over love? Now, I don't want to have you guys misunderstand. Truth is very valuable, okay? I'm not saying truth is not valuable. But in the hierarchy of things, love should always go above truth. This is what happened to Paul. You see, when Paul showed up on, uh, in the church, uh, in, the, in the synagogue of Ephesus and said, hey guys, let me tell you about this new th- way that we are connecting with God. Instead of showing love to Paul, immediately they thought, well, there's that verse, there's this verse, there's that verse in the Old Testament. I could use these verses to combat what Paul is saying. Instead of stepping forward with love, they stepped forward with, we're right and you're wrong. Like I said, Truth is very important. Truth is how we make things operate. There would be no science without truth, right? Like we make truth claims, right? But if life is only about truth, but without love, then there is no heaven on earth. Yes, people are gonna be wrong about a lot of things. You're gonna be wrong about a lot of things. But the reason why we could get back up and move forward and get along with each other is because of love. If you look back at church history, If you look at all the times that we look back and say, we are proud that the church did that. Like the church is the reason we have public schools. The church is the reason why we have hospitals, right? And they were all started with people looking at a society saying, you know, it's not right that only the rich are able to read and write. We need to start a school. The first Sunday school was actually just to teach people how to read. The Lutheran church started that, right? Whenever the church steps forward with love first, the church is remembered as being a good entity in society. Whenever the church stepped forward with the claim of truth or power, we look back at history and we don't really smile at those stories. When we think we're right and the rest of the world is wrong, when we feel like we need to go to other countries and civilize the people over there, these are the stories we're ashamed of telling. So I'm not saying the truth is not important, but I am saying that if you don't value love over truth, then we have a problem. Again, how hard is your heart? And if I were to take all these questions, and I'm sure there's more questions like litmus tests that you could take on yourself, on your own, to see how hard your heart is. But if I were to take all of that and, and just consolidate into one fat big question, it would be this. Does unconditional love rub you the wrong way? Does inclusion, it doesn't matter what your history is, it doesn't matter what you did yesterday, it doesn't matter how bad you sinned, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter who you are, you're welcome here. Does that rub you the wrong way? Jesus tells stories about this. He says, there's a guy who worked really, really hard for all day long, and he got paid a wage, and then another guy comes in at the last minute and gets the same amount of wage, and the guy who worked all day is angry. Why are you so angry? 
Is it because the guy who employed you like is unconditional in the way that he gives, he pays his employees? Is that why, does that threaten you? And while I'm at it, this might offend some of you, okay? When Jesus pays off your debt of sin, and you've been following his way for 50 years, 60 years, and somebody has a, a deathbed side uh, a conversion, I've heard people say, that doesn't seem fair. Because I, I lived this strict life from my entire life, and this person just kind of falls in place at the last minute, and we end up with the same reward. That doesn't seem fair. Does debt forgiveness offend you? What about immigrants? When they come into our land and enjoy the benefits of this land, does that offend you? Sure, you could use truth to, to, to say, yeah, that's not right. And that, I, I get that, right? But where's the love, the unconditional love? Does unconditional love threaten you? And this is how we could know if we have hard hearts or not. If somebody, if you have certain rights that you've enjoyed your entire life, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, I want the same rights and benefits that you do, does that threaten you? And this is what Paul came across. When he came in and said, hey, I think God wants us to live a more fair life, where we sacrifice ourselves for the rights of other people. We need to, do, we need to start living our life like Christ did. And people said, no. Paul said, there must be something else at play here. There must be some powers or principalities that's controlling this because I can't figure out why people are living this way, why people don't want to change. Paul's like, I just can't wrap my mind around it. And so, this is what our series is gonna be about, power trip. Paul is gonna be coming across some of the strongest forces that he has ever in his many trips around the Mediterranean area. And uh, we're gonna be talking about this and it's gonna make us very uncomfortable. But I hope you guys stick around for, for this journey, amen? All right, let's pray.